As a farmer, you need confidence. To plan ahead and do what's best for your business and the environment. That's why you should apply for the Sustainable Farming Incentive. With SFI, you can be rewarded for a range of actions that support sustainable food production and receive four payments a year to help with cash flow. Farming for the future, funding farmers for a more sustainable business. Search gov.uk forward slash future farming. Subject to eligibility, applies to England only. And welcome to the latest edition of the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast with your host, Ash Elwood. We recorded this edition a little bit differently as we did it from the Crop Tech show, which was held on November 29th and 30th in Stoneleigh. So come along with us and see who we were chatting to. First off, we chatted with sheep and arable farmer Jo Franklin to see how her and her husband have used sheep and arable to benefit both parts of the enterprise equally. So I'm here with uh, Joe Franklin at CropTech and you were one of the panellists in the Connecting Bold Thinkers in a Time of Change, Real Stories from Boots on the Ground. And I understand that you left your family farm and then went to set up an arable and sheep enterprise with your husband. Um, can you just give us a little bit of background about what that enterprise looks like in its current form? So we started off with 200 ewes um, on 60 rented acres and over the course of 10 years we've built that to 2,200 Romneys approximately and then another 300 milking ewes. Um, they're heavily integrated into the arable system, um, they lamb on permanent pasture around country houses or private schools on the whole and then we move them on to cover crops um, as soon as they're ready in sort of September, October time. Brilliant, okay. And what are the sort of connections? How do the two enterprises work together and what sort of benefits do you see to the arable rotation for having introducing sheep there? So the arable rotation um, gets the benefit of the golden hoof, which is you know, something from the, the past that we all know was a good thing. We don't especially know why, um, probably down to the biology that it brings back. When I did a soil course in America as part of my Nuffield, we learned to do microscope assays to see what was in the soil. And when I came back, I did lots of microscope work and found that there was very little life in a lot of arable soils around us. Um, so now when I do them, it's teeming with, with bugs, bacteria, um, fungi, nematodes, good nematodes. So it's really brought the life back to the soil. So I think it's, it's an acceleration of, on the region, sort of sustainable journey. Um, we've been growing a lot of cover crops for probably 13 years or so, so having something to make good use of those and turn them into available fertiliser is fantastic because otherwise you've got to top them. Um, and then we've honed our system and, and bought a drill that can go straight in behind after the sheep and it puts a, a crop straight in the ground um, with an available fertiliser source that can just get up and get going. So that means a reduction in our overall fertiliser, um, inorganic fertiliser use, which is obviously a cost saving. So the sheep in their own right make really good money and then they help knock costs off of the, um, the arable bill as well. We could take that further. We could graze um, wheat and all seed rape, which would be technically good for the crops. We don't at the minute because we have so much cover crop grazing that you get more grazing days out of that and less moves. So on our scale, 
it makes more sense to stick with the cover crops but we could probably knock the use of growth regs out and the first fungicide at least by doing that. Brilliant and in terms of grazing your cover crops what does that look like what sort of time of year do they go on and how long do they usually stay for? In a... So they go on sort of September October and they're there on them right the way around till February March when we put them back on the permanent pasture for a pre-lamb rotation to wake the grass up. Um, they go in groups, multiples of 250. It's really anal how I do it, but I do it so that it gives me um, an actual best guess figure of nitrogen to knock off of my wheats. So they go in um, 12 electric fence posts, 12 paces apart um, in those, those size cells, 250 to a cell, and they move once a week. And that gives me, if, if, if the crop's gonna run short because it's not very good, we'll put up a little bit of silage in just to keep them there longer. That silage is there for the arable's benefit, not for the sheep, um, just, to, just to eke out that cell to make sure that amount of FYM's going back. It's obviously a totally inexact science, but it does seem to sort of do the job. We use an end tester to double check what we're doing in the growing crop later in the season, and it does seem to reliably knock that 40 kilos off. Um, we also use uh, an endophyte seed treatment, which helps scavenge organic nitrogen. Um, so that's the, the, the combination of all those things is really helping the arable system thrive and the soil rebuild to a better state than it was in previously. Brilliant. Okay. No, that's great. And in terms of that grazing sort of coming to the end, obviously, of the cover crops life cycle, is that your only and main form of cover crop destruction or do you have to do anything else to it afterwards? We then will leave it um, for three, four weeks, something like that, and see what greens up on it. If there's any bromes or black grass, then we will spray it off before we drill it. If there's not, then we'll just drill it. Okay, brilliant. And what does your standard sort of rotation look like? What crops are you growing on your farm? So we have quite a variety of crops. We have grass for seed, we have borage, we have winter wheat, we have spring barley and spring wheat, depending on the economics of the season. We also have peas. I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, so our, our cropping is winter, spring, winter, spring. So it's winter wheat followed by a spring barley or a spring wheat um, after a cover crop. Then it goes back to a, a winter wheat and then it goes to a peas or a borage, a true break, before back round to, to winter wheat, which predominantly is done for blackgrass reasons, to keep that blackgrass guessing what's coming next. And the borage has a really late drilling date, um, so it's just mixing up all the time the drilling dates, the crops, the chemistry, and having those two um, cover crops in the four years. So there's sort of six crops going on in four years and four of them are cash crops, which helps us with enterprise stacking as well. So we're getting more income from from the same acreage rather than just leaving it there for the winter. Brilliant, okay. Um, and then any sort of advice to arable farmers who are thinking of you know, potentially introducing some livestock onto their farm, um, any advice for them? So we are um, a Romney breeder and we are the only breeder that breeds in the um, integrated sort of system. So the sheep we breed understand electric fencing they're perfect for the crop because they have a really large room and so they can digest things without getting bloat and things. So you have to have the right stock to do it. Um, if you bring something, if you get something from the market, some stores out of the market that have never seen electric before, you're going to have an absolute nightmare. So you've got to start with the right, the right stock. They've got the right genetics for what you want. You have to have good feet. 
Um, FEC resistance is obviously something built in for us, but not in all breeds. So there's ways of making your life so much easier. Um, and then it's, it's just give it a go, really. We did, we were doing 600 before we even had a, a sheepdog. So it's, it's possible to sort of do that evenings and weekends, as long as you get a sort of low input sheep, which our Kaipoi New Zealand Romneys are. Yeah, and any future plans? Have you got any ideas for different routes or are you going to keep pushing what you're doing or what's your idea next? So we are gearing up to hopefully buy a farm in a couple of years. That's our dream, that's our goal. Um, so we are still taking grazing on, we're still upping sheep numbers um, while, they're, while they are doing so well. Um, and the arable is obviously struggling, so it's the time to, to make hay while the sun shines on the sheep. Um, we'll carry on with the sheep dairy, building that. That's been really interesting from the breeding side. Um, we will continue to improve the genetics. We would like to get a ram in the top 200 um, sill recording system, which would mean we were up there with the best of the Kiwi breeders. Um, we got close, we got to 205, so we're nearly there. Um, our cost of production, is about 30 pounds a lamb so you know there is good money to be made at the moment you can only do that by running numbers and you've got to have the right sheep to be able to run numbers which which we believe ours are so we just continue to improve them we've just completed a, a methane project producing low methane sheep so as as the carbon discussion moves forward we can fill that market um, with an animal that, that is far better for the environment than the vast majority Next, I chatted with Tom McBride from Yagro, discussing what role data plays in farming businesses. Okay, so we're at CropTech and I'm here with Yagro's Tom. Um, so if you just want to give us a bit of an introduction to you, what your role is and sort of what you do at the company. Sure, yep. So my name's Tom McBride, uh, head of commercial at Yagro. So essentially looking after the customer facing side of the business. Um, been at Yagro for coming up to a year. Um, with a lot of experience in, in data analytics before that. Um, so yeah. Brilliant, okay. So with a bit of a data focus, obviously that's quite a, a large section of um, what Yagro does. Mm -hmm. um, talk to us about sort of, you know, what data is in its basic form and yeah, yeah. how it can help people. So I think, I think within the agricultural industry, data is maybe a bit of a uh, confusing word because people maybe get scared by it, but simply what we're talking about is farm records. So any record of any farming activity, which is nearly always being recorded in some sort, in some way on all farms. And that's what we're talking about when we mean data. Brilliant, okay. And how might people go about collecting this data? Obviously we've got a lot of records on farm, mm -hmm. but what would be the best way to sort of collate this and make it into something that's usable? So I think the first point, of the, uh, first kind of point to that answer is that People already are doing a lot that they don't realise. And I think when you say to them, are you collecting data? Maybe they'll say no, but actually they usually are. There's a lot of stuff about what you have to already record. So whether that's spray activity, you already record stuff through invoicing, what you're selling, etc., etc. So there's a lot of data already there. That's the first point. How you collate it, that's partly why Yagro is there, but also there's other things that do that already. So farm management software, for instance, does a decent job at bringing a lot of that together. Um, and then the idea is that Yagra will take the farm management software plus any other bits, so invoicing, sales data, etc., etc., pull it all together on one easy-to-use platform. And I think the key thing is actually being able to get something out the back of it because it's all very well and good collecting data, but if you're not using it to do something, it's almost pointless. So what we try and do is make sure that there's one place to bring all the data together and then actually 
do something off the back of it, whether that's make a farming decision, use it to get credit from the bank, whatever that could be. It's always about actually using the data that you have. Lovely, and obviously you guys have recently um, released a report named Harvest 23. Yep. Um, so just give us a little bit of background as to actually what this is and what has gone into the sort of publication of this report. Sure, so it's essentially a view of the 2023 harvest through the lens of Yagro's tools and using our team of experts. Um, what that means is that we've collated the information we have about the harvest period put it into a format that we hope will be interesting and most uh, mostly a food for thought for farmers and our customers to be able to look at the harvest and think, oh, what's happened? Why has it happened? And we're not expecting this to be advice. We're not saying this should be what you would do off the back of it, what you do next year, but it's to give you food for thought about what's happened and our view using the data that we have, but also our experts that have been analysing all this data to be able to give you a good snapshot of the that period. And again, it's all about making sure that the data is usable, viewable, and actually in an easy to consume manner. Brilliant, okay. And how have you gone about collecting this data? So we do that through uh, a number of ways, mainly through the, the kind of the, the, the customer base we have um, in the fact that we work with them, we have their data, but it is their data. And it got to be very clear here, it's their data. We do not share it with anyone else. This is aggregated anonymized data that we've pulled together alongside other industry data that's widely available to give a picture of the harvest in its entirety. So the idea is we're not uh, putting at risk anyone's data, we're collating it all together with uh, industry data as well to try and give a decent snapshot of the harvest period in 2023. And are there any sort of standout key findings that you've seen from the Harvest 2023 report? Yeah, I mean, Gareth pulled them out quite nicely at the beginning of the reports of Gareth's RMD, um, who is a, a founder of the business. And I think one of the big things that we've seen is the, the variability of different, maybe more traditionally stable uh, varieties. So we've looked at uh, KWS X days. That could give you uh, pause for thought in terms of is there variability there? And I think that's one of the things we've tried to do with the report is make people think about how they've traditionally thought about different things within the industry and making sure they're analysing it to see if that still holds true year on year. Um, so it could also be uh, the volatility of fuel prices was massive. It's not a surprise to anyone, but one of the reasons it's key to, to, to mention the fuel prices is in terms of does that actually change buying perception, uh, buying habits? Does that actually change when you do things? because the data will show you over a time period where those prices fluctuate and then actually it might able to make better decisions next year of what's happened in previous years. And obviously taking this whole report into account of the last sort of season we've seen, is there anything you think people could pull out and take forward for next season as sort of guidance or advice? No, I would say that I don't want to give advice to people off the back of it. I think that this is very much a... Uh, a snapshot into the into the harvest period but what I would suggest people do is read it and see where it chimes with their own farm where it actually is relatable to their own farm one thing we do know and we see this through the wide set of data we have is that every farm is different and we are not trying to bucket all farms in one particular area and we know that there's difference in, in weather for instance in a difference in soil type so every farm is different what we would suggest is that people use the the review to have a read and try and identify where the commonalities are to their own farming experience and help hopefully be able to think about things for the future off the back of what's in the report but as a general piece of advice i wouldn't say there is one it's more about taking the report and trying to find the commonalities to where 
experiences that you've seen previously. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's great. Um, and then sort of lastly, just for somebody that's, you know, perhaps not familiar with data collection in the whole and, you know, wanting to try and get a little bit more tech savvy and data savvy on the yep. farm, what advice would you give someone looking to sort of make that change to collate it a little better? First of all, I would make sure that you understand what the data is. So if I go back to the point about farm records, is making sure that you understand that every farm record or all bits of recording you do is data. I would try and understand where you're collating all those bits. So are you actually taking it off the machinery you're using and actually recording it off that? Or is it still just on the machinery uh, computers? As an example, try and work out where all these pieces are being stored. And then there are so many different pieces of software out there and not just Yagro, but there are pieces of software like the farm management software that I've, uh, I've mentioned that does help you collate it. Yagro is always happy to have a conversation around this and help you identify where you are recording your data and understand is there an easy way to collate it and uh, we've partnered with Gatekeeper very recently that actually there is now a simple button on the Gatekeeper report that can pull out one that we can just take straight directly from Gatekeeper. So the idea being is that you are recording a lot of data that you don't know about already or that you might not think you are. We can help you bring that into one easy to manage platform without you having to do any extra work. What we are definitely not trying to do is make people have to do more work. We're trying to collate everything and make it easier to use and actually save people time. And that's another reason that people might use Yagro is actually that having everything in one place saves them time if they're trying to do comparisons. Great. So I know you've possibly um, worked outside of agriculture within data previously. So are there any similarities that farming has with different industries and, and where do you think we need to get to to sort of align with these things? Yeah, I, I think there are similarities. I think the biggest similarities is that there is a wealth of data and I think that every industry has it. And I think also the other similarity is that every industry maybe doesn't understand it and doesn't think they have it. So the, the, the crux of it is to make sure that we get all the data together and understand what data is. So is it, is it that it's farm records, it's any invoice data, etc, etc. And I think where farming needs to get to is to not see data as too scary and to help it do what it's always done, but to keep on doing it better and better each time. So I think, the, and again, to go back to it, data is pointless unless it's doing something. So one of our kind of uh, phrases is that uh, data, the right data at the right time equals the right decision. So you need to get the data, you need to have it in an orderly fashion. A perfect example is to make a decision for the next year, because if you get it too late, perhaps the seed's already gone in the ground. You need to make sure that you're having a timely response and using the data correctly to be able to make those decisions. And that's something that the farming industry can keep on doing and we're seeing examples of it we have uh, we have case studies from within our customer set of where they've been able to do that but we want to see that more and more so that everyone within the industry can use data to help them make the right decisions in the future we know that they're already making great decisions and that sort of experience but hopefully data can help them enhance those decision making abilities brilliant and would you have any examples of case studies as to how this data sort of helped people make decisions yeah so in terms of machinery is, is a big one so are they should, should they be buying a piece of machinery or not because of potentially drill dates so do they want to drill early in the season do they want to drill later in the season it could if they're renting a machine it could be a it, it could be an impact in terms of um uh, the yield performance so one thing that we can do is help uh, assess that to assess does it make financial sense to actually make a purchase rather than renting and i think that's where we try and do and that's why we do the cost of production is one of our 
our metrics to enable people to understand the financial impact of making decisions. Um, and where do you personally see agricultural data going in the future? Where would you hope it, it gets to? Well, personally, I hope it becomes less scary and I hope people also are less worried about doing it and I hope that tech helps make that process easier. We're already seeing it on lots of machinery that there's so much recording on the machinery so one thing we're trying to do as much as possible is make that uh, a seamless transition between the machine and the software so that everything marries up so when you're coming to a platform like Yagro you have all that data and it's not it's not laborious and it's not time consuming and I think that's where I want everything to get to and we feel at Yagro that we're already on that journey and we think that we can save people time and effort but we want to make sure that that's the case for all for all elements of data in agriculture because if it's time consuming it's not beneficial okay that's lovely thank you very much tom and hope you have a good rest of the show you too thanks very much cheers then we sat down with father and son duo robert and will ingham from glass and fertilizers to discuss all things protected urea yeah so we're here at crop tech i've got two um glass and fertiliser for Robert Ingham and Will Ingham. So just want to explain to me what glass and fertilisers is first and, and how you're finding CropTech. Um, yes, we're having a good time <laughs> with CropTech, thank you. Um, glass and fertilisers is a um, national blender. We operate six fertiliser blending plants throughout the UK. So we're importing and mixing fertilisers and then stirring them out to farm. Brilliant. Okay, and I understand today you are launching a new product. What is that you've launched? We are. The new product is, is a protected urea called Starbur. Brilliant. Okay. And talk to us about protected urea. I understand there's a little bit of sort of legislation changes. So why do we need to protect urea to start with? Yeah, I think firstly on the legislation change, um, the government, because of the um, Clean Air Act, want to reduce ammonia emissions. One of the best ways of reducing ammonia emissions on fertiliser is to protect urea to make it a slow release product. When urea is put onto the, um, the ground, it releases ammonia in hot, dry conditions. Um, the inhibitors prevent that and make it a much slower release process so that the plant is able to take up the uh, ammonia before it uh, evaporates into the air as, as ammonia. So, so in terms of the, what the government have done legislatively with that is um, they've said that uh, there, was, there were a few options on the table. Um, it was heavily consulted with the AIC, who is the uh, Agricultural Industries Confederation, um, our trade body, and the NFU. Um, and we came up with an option which was to allow uh, the application of untreated urea during the period from January and February to uh, the 1st of April. But after the 1st of April, all the urea that is applied um, has to be treated. And that's because um, obviously temperatures are rising after the 1st of April and there's more chance of uh, ammonia being released into the air right. after that date. So, so this is the new legislation that's come in this year. So from the 1st of April, um, farmers won't be able to apply urea without a stabiliser right, um, or a urea inhibitor. Okay, so from the 1st of April, is there any sort of restrictions on protected urea rather than just urea? No, no, you can apply protected urea after the 1st of April. That's, that's the way it's gone. Um, slightly different to how it's, how it's gone on the continent. In Germany, for example, they've insisted that um, all urea is inhibited, so farmers aren't allowed to apply urea without inhibitor on at all over there. So this has been a, a sort of a compromise in the UK. But when I say the UK, it's a compromise in England because Scotland and Wales haven't yet adopted these, um, that, these regulations. So in Scotland and Wales, you can still apply urea throughout the year at the moment. Until the 
decide to do something about those countries. And is it still with this protection of your ear, is it still applied in the same way as your ear? Is it still got the same Yeah, perhaps you will answer those different questions. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, so um, it is it's, it's applied. We, we buy in the granular ear and we apply it to that ear as a coating. And then, yeah, we bag it up as you would expect normal ear to arrive on the farm. Brilliant. So it's got the same sort of application rate and all the rest of it? Yes, depending on crop. Depending on the crop. Yes, yeah. Brilliant. And we, we the um, fact that uh, it's preventing this ammonia loss to the atmosphere, it's also benefiting the farmer because it is preventing that loss. Yeah. Um, previously, people have calculated it's probably 80% efficiency with urea, so 20% of, of the effective product is lost into the atmosphere. Yeah. With, with, a, with a coated product, um, more of that is retained in the soil and used, utilised by the crop rather than being lost to the atmosphere. So there are big agronomic benefits to the farmer right. as well as to the environment. And what is roughly the efficiency of a protected urea? Um, the efficiency of a protected urea is probably 98%. Uh, okay, yeah, sounds good. And how have you so calculated that? How have we calculated with that? That's, so that's done based trial. on trial data, yes. Yeah. done yeah. on trial, yeah. yeah. So 98% of the effective product is um, remaining in the uh, in the soil rather than disappearing into the atmosphere. Brilliant. So yeah, it brings massive benefits to the farmer as well Absolutely. in terms of efficiencies. Yes. Brilliant. And in terms of price, is it more expensive than your ear or is it similar or...? It comes at a small premium to standard granular ear, yeah. So the... Um, the trials we've uh, done with our partner in Germany have showed a, an increase in yields in wheat of uh, almost 5% uh, for Starbuck when compared to normal conventional granular urea. No, that's great. Well, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Have a nice rest of your show day. Thank you. Thanks for joining us and listening to our crop tech version of Crop It Like It's Hot. We hope you've enjoyed it and it sparked you to join us at the show next year if you weren't already with us this year. We wish you all a really Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and we'll see you next time.